Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the nation's death toll from the coronavirus is now more than 180,000 lives. Although the coronavirus cases are reportedly down nationwide, the U.S. still averages more than 900 deaths each day, according to data from the Johns Hopkins University. In the meantime, auditing of Medicare claims has resumed. Auditors will be looking at post-payment reviews of COVID-19 tests. As expected, algorithms will play a dominant role, which brings us to our lead story, the algo race between payers and providers. Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach is standing by in New York with an exclusive report. In other news this morning, former CMS official Matthew Albright has a Monitor Monday legislative update. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Nicole Emanuel has a Monitor Monday Rack report. And Alan Fink Sandrick reports the latest news on the social determinants for health. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good morning, all. As we anxiously await the 2021 IPPS final rule, it gives me a chance to remind you how confusing all the waivers and flexibilities have been for the pandemic. And what's more amazing is that the confusion hasn't even stopped. And let me tell you, the racks have got to be licking their lips knowing there'll be a treasure trove of topics for audits. The latest confusion relates to the use of the CS modifier for visits where the COVID test is ordered or administered to indicate that the service is covered 100%. After three months of confusion, CMS finally released a list of HICSPICS codes eligible to have the CS applied. And as I reported here in the past, only, the only codes that are eligible are visit codes. The CS cannot be applied to the line item for the CAT scan or the EKG or any other testing done at the time of the visit. Now, let me clarify here. This applies to Medicare only. For group and individual plans, the law specifies 100% coverage for the visit and all items and services furnished during the visit. It's different, and that's obviously confusing. Not only is that confusing, but CMS seems to have left off Q3014, the originating site fee, from the list of eligible codes for use by outpatient hospitals with this CS modifier. But interestingly, they did include G0463, the facility fee, and the list for eligible for physicians to use for eligible codes includes the Q3014. So besides not understanding why Q3014 is not on the hospital outpatient list, I also don't understand when a physician would charge an originating site fee. Now, I'm working with CMS to try and get clarification, so I'll report back. Now, to make things more uncertain, the CMS transmittal gives no instructions to the MACs about what to do with claims where the CS was improperly applied and the provider was already paid 100%. Will they automatically recoup the 20% and call it a done deal? 
But then how will supplemental plans know that they're supposed to pay the 20%? What if the patient has not yet paid their deductible when they had that visit and CMS covered it at 100%, but now the patient met their deductible with other services? Will CMS just recoup the full amount and have the provider submit a corrected claim? What are patients going to say when they get a surprise bill months after their visit when they were told that everything was covered 100%? And there's another mess. The New York Times reported Saturday about all the uninsured patients getting bills for COVID care that could have been covered by the government HRSA fund. Now, why this happened? Well, it happened because providers did not listen to Monitor Monday and know that the HRSA program specifically stated that coding rules do not apply to these claims. These providers, hospitals, urgent care centers, physicians, they were allowed to bill COVID as the primary diagnosis, even if it went against coding rules to allow the claim to qualify for reimbursement. As a result, there are now thousands of upset patients who are on their way to bankruptcy. Nice work, guys. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today, I'd like to talk about Medicaid expansion during COVID. We all know that COVID has uprooted our lives. Telehealth is the new post-COVID norm. Perhaps Medicaid expansion is as well. I would be remiss if I did not mention that telehealth and Medicaid expansion is also going to increase the possibility for Rack and MAC audits more patients and more ways to serve the patients, more audits. COVID has made telehealth an overnight success. Computers are now as essential as cars, internet access as well. COVID has been the catalyst for Medicaid expansion during COVID. COVID caused more people to qualify for Medicaid without expansion. COVID has spurred three states to expand Medicaid. These were states that most people did not believe would ever expand. Missouri expanded Medicaid August 4, 2020. Oklahoma expanded Medicaid June 30, 2020. It will not begin until July 1, 2021. That was a very close pass. It was less than one full percentage point in the polls. In all, 12 states have not expanded, including North Carolina, Florida, and Texas. 39 states plus D.C. have expanded. Herein lies Ellen's points on the social determinants of health. COVID has made these inequalities exasperated, including rising income inequality, joblessness, and pressure from hospitals and economic turmoil. In the depths of the coronavirus shutdown, telehealth accounted for more than 40% of primary care visits for patients with traditional Medicare. Before COVID, that was only 0.1% before the PHE. Data shows 60% of psychiatric consults took place by telehealth during the shutdown. Under the coronavirus PHE, the administration temporarily waived Medicare's restrictions so enrollees anywhere could use telemedicine. Making such changes permanent, however, would require legislation from Congress. Payments and alleged overpayments for telehealth and future RAC and MAC audits will be sticky obstacles. 
for now, Medicare is paying clinicians on par for virtual in-person visits. But fraud busters, otherwise known as RAC and MAC auditors, agree. It may or may not stay that way. Medicaid generally follows in Medicare's path. Since the general use of telehealth is so new, we really don't have a real sense of where the big risks lie, although we can make educated guesses. For example, if the rate parity should change, I definitely foresee a plethora of RAC and MAC audits. More Medicaid expansion means more telehealth because there are more users. In essence, Medicaid expansion goes hand in hand with the expansion of telehealth. It's the new norm, people. Virtual physicians, government insurance, are flying cars next? Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Samnick, Matthew Albright, and Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach, who's standing by in New York to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's August the 31st, 2020, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Maintaining strict regulatory compliance continues to be a challenge. A variety of factors, from a barrage of regulatory news to the ongoing impact of COVID-19, make navigating turbulent waters more difficult. Now, more than ever, you need to make sure everyone on your team, including those who work remotely, are following the same regulatory guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance webcast is your report in the storm. With just one money-saving fee, your entire team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's the best part. You can take a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at Rack University. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So it turns out I don't just use songs in my Monitor Monday segments. They pop up in other elements of my life. And last week, I used one in an email to a client. So this client has been under investigation for a while. We received a civil investigative demand that included both a request for documents, what you might think of as a subpoena, and a list of questions, interrogatories. Now, when you get something like that from the government, I recommend you've got a lawyer who's friendly but also has a backbone reach out and work to negotiate the scope of the requests. Our efforts to do so were successful, but slow. There was often a considerable lag between our question or suggestion and a reply. Now, our production's complete, and we're waiting to get a sense as to whether the government believes there's been a violation of the law. There's a great Yiddish term for how the client feels right now, spilkes, which is sitting on pins and needles. Much like an anxious parent waiting for a child to return home as curfew approaches, If you're under investigation, it can be difficult to focus on anything else. But there's an important difference between the two situations. For the parent, addressing the concern by making a phone call might make sense. It might allay the parent's concern. Now, it could annoy the child, but that's, I guess, part of the description of parent. Now, personally, I'm more of a fan of giving kids independence, but this isn't a parenting advice segment. This is about government investigations. And while reasonable people might differ on how to approach a teen, when it comes to the government, there's only one wise approach, patience. Have you ever had a project that you know you need to finish, but you just don't feel like dealing with it? Perhaps you've even forgotten what you need to do. 
Well, government investigators aren't that different than you and me. They have the same sorts of crummy projects, and sometimes they forget about a task. And if they happen to forget about you, well, that's better than the most creative argument that any lawyer can make. That's why the strategy of letting sleeping dogs lie is probably the most effective defense strategy in existence. It doesn't really matter whether we're talking about an audit by a Mac or a private insurance company or an investigation by the FBI or a licensing board. There's rarely anything to be gained by breaking the silence to reach out to the auditor or investigator. The longer an investigation continues, the less likely you'll be required to pay anything. Heck, there might even be a statute of limitations that's running. If you do pay, the passage of time will almost certainly lower the amount. Now, you may think, well, there's a cost to defending the investigation. The more time, the more expensive. But during these lulls, wise lawyers might do nothing but wait. Here's a real-world example. In one big national investigation, I worked with a client that planned to just say no to settlement. But over time, the government, recognizing the strength of our defense, continually lowered their demand, such that the final figure was really de minimis. The earliest organizations to settle paid nearly six times the amount of money per patient that the client actually settled for. Now, I could also list dozens of situations where clients produced documents and then never heard another word from the government. I know it's stressful not knowing how something is going to resolve. But Tom Petty has a song, later covered by both Linda Ronstadt and Natalie Imbruglia, that emphasizes an important lesson. If you're patient enough during an investigation, it may turn out that the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink Sandwich. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. As usual, the social determinants are everywhere. And over the course of COVID, one topic has mysteriously fallen below the radar. It's one that greatly impacts health outcomes and especially virus transmission rates. Joint Commission identified this issue way back in 2008 as among the most important factors to impact population health. Any ideas? Well, one final hint for you all. The topic was highlighted in the latest version of what is now Healthy People 2030 as a critical social determinant to further drive health disparities. For those whose brains are moving a tad slower this Monday, well, I'm referring to health literacy. As opposed to language literacy, which is about how well you speak and understand a language, health literacy is the degree to which individuals obtain, process, and understand basic health information needed to make appropriate health decisions, with low literacy more prevalent among older adults, minority populations, those who live amid a low socioeconomic status, and medically underserved persons. 
Now, we're talking roughly 50% of U.S. adults and over 100 million Americans who can't understand the information being conveyed about their health care. In the context of COVID, low health literacy impacts understanding basic public health precautions, the why, what, where, when, and hows of virus transmission. Health literacy involves knowing what to make of a diagnosis and how severe it is. It impacts understanding informed consent, the weighing of pros and cons of healthcare decisions about all treatment, procedures, follow-up appointments, discharge planning options, and medication instructions. Let's really hone in on those true factors to impact increased hospital utilization and prompt readmissions, increased increased length of stay, and costs. Now, in the scope of COVID and transmission, challenges abound for patients with poor health literacy who are unable to fully understand what they read or are told about the virus. Recent research on over 5,100 adults released by the Kennedy School at Harvard yield that Black people, males, and individuals younger than 55 years of age were less likely to know how COVID spreads and its key symptoms. Black patients were 9% less likely than white patients to know how the virus can spread. Black men were 5% less likely to know this information than black females. These populations were less likely to engage in key health behaviors that reduce COVID transmission, especially regular hand washing and social distancing, let alone the need for masks. Research out of the University of Alabama at Birmingham Hospital noted patients with low literacy levels are four to five more times likely to experience the post-surgical infection than individuals with adequate health literacy levels. Low health literacy is linked to longer hospitalizations, an increased rate of minor complications, and of the 270 patients studied, close to 80% had adequate health literacy. 14.1% marginal health literacy and 7% low health literacy. 36.8% of those persons with low health literacy had a post-op infection. Now, countless tools support health literacy efforts. The Joint Commission has an online health equity portal with free, yes, that lovely word again, free resources. The CDC also has free resources, including their health literacy guidance tools. Uh, The Association for Health Research and Quality has Health Literacy Universal Precautions Toolkits, and HHS has a Health Literacy Online Guide. Health literacy is an easy fix for organizations, but those easiest tasks are often those which evade attention most, and we all know I'm prone to cloud the issue with logic. This week's Monitor Monday survey asks, how big an issue is health literacy for your organization? A, not an issue. B, minor impact to patient care, about 25% of the time impacting it. Major impact to patient care, impacting that care 50% of the time, or do not know. We'll return with the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was a consultant and author, Ellen Frick-Sandwich. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain health care claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, discussions on Friday between the White House and Speaker Pelosi on a new COVID-19 relief package were not productive, And at this point, there's a real chance that a relief bill will not be passed before the election. 
this in spite of the fact that though both Democrats and Republicans appear to want a package, they have vastly different ideas of how much it should cost. At this point, the major elements of previous congressional relief packages have expired, including the $600 unemployment benefit, the small business loan program, and the eviction moratorium. But another thing that is due to expire at the end of September is funding to keep the government open and running. What may happen then is that Congress and the president will pass a continuing resolution, which basically keeps funding at current levels or with an across-the-board budget cut. There is talk, especially from the Republican side, that a COVID relief package should be attached to a continuing resolution that keeps the government open. If a relief package is not attached to a continuing resolution, then we are unlikely to see a package before the election. In the meantime, let's do a quick rundown of significant agency policies and guidance we've seen over the past couple weeks. Last Tuesday, CMS displayed an interim final rule on CLIA, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. Among other things, the final rule enforces against hospitals that don't report data on COVID-19 cases, including the number of occupied ICU beds and the availability of essential supplies and equipment. Hospitals have been required since May to report these stats. However, this rule would impose civil money penalties on hospitals that don't report. The CLIA rule is an interim final rule with comments, or an IFC. An IFC is basically a final rule where an agency has skipped the hassle of first proposing a rule, then getting public input on it, and then finalizing the rule with any changes based on that public comment. An agency is allowed to use an IFC if there is one, an urgency to the rule for the public good, or two, there's a sense that everyone would more or less be in favor of the rule. In an IFC, there is time given for public input, but unless there are overwhelming comments against the rule being finalized, the IFC will stand as written as law. In that same CLIA IFC, CMS also restricts Medicare beneficiaries to just one COVID-19 test that is given without orders from a physician. That is, if a beneficiary just uh, goes down to the local drugstore to take a test without being directed to do so by a doctor, or say takes a test for non-medical reasons, for instance, so they can be cleared for travel, CMS will only pay for that kind of test once. The agency says that this restriction is to stop fraudsters from performing and billing for unnecessary tests. And in the past week, the CDC came out with two notable shifts in their guidance. First, the agency modified its COVID-19 testing guidance so that it now recommends that people not take a test if they don't have symptoms. In contrast, the CDC had previously stressed the potential of asymptomatic spread and had stated that testing was recommended in cases where someone was in close contact with a person with COVID-19. And last month, we reported that the CDC was urging schools to reopen for in-person learning, stating that in-person education was important to a children's social, emotional, and behavioral health. Since then, the CDC put a slight caveat on that, saying that there may be cases in which school business, school buildings should be closed and schools should be suspended in order to stop transmission of the virus. And Chuck, with that, I'm going to send it back to you. 
Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. What secret about algorithms has Ed Roach uncovered in his investigation about the Algo arms race? Standing by for the answer in our exclusive report is Ed Roach, and he'll be here in just 60 seconds. This is Monitor Monday. It's the broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. Important regulatory information that impacts you and your team is available in the latest edition of the Auditor Monitor. Here are some highlights. Recent case law has loosened the tight rules of extrapolation. These rules, set forth in Chapter 8 of the Program Integrity Manual, dictate the governing of statistical sampling and overpayment estimation. Also in this edition of the Auditor Monitor, you will gain insight into the contentious two-midnight rule, the federal requirement that inpatient hospital stays cross two midnights. Given all the waivers, this information is more relevant than ever. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Go to the Rack University Bookstore, order a subscription today, and start receiving your edition of the Auditor Monitor. No stranger to chronicling the Cold War arms race of the 1970s, Rack Monitor investigator reporter Ed Roach joins us now for his exclusive report on the Algo race between payers and providers. And good morning, Ed. Hi, Chuck. This arms race is expressed in computer algorithm auditing patterns. We see three algorithm types. First, rule check algorithms. Analyze information on individual claims and check to see it is not obviously wrong. If a Medicare claim is filed, a duplicate claim should not be filed for Medicaid. The claims should show typical service for that provider. Check against external databases, excluded provider lists, federal investigation database, beneficiary identification numbers. Geotagging can confirm the needed proximity between patient and provider. Identity services can flag non-existent addresses or people. Computers make it possible to check hundreds of rules for each claim while processing claims at tens of thousands per minute. Rule check algorithms are conceptually simple, but present a formidable computer programming challenge because so many systems must be tied together. Second, process algorithms. How does a claim fit into a broader pattern of treatment? The comorbidity principle and conditional probability distribution techniques recognize that chronic conditions may appear together in predictable constellations or sequences. This would flag a procedure that should not be there, such as an initial visit that follows a few weeks after a previous initial visit. These systems rely heavily on statistical analysis. Monte Carlo sampling, Markov change, linear analysis, Dempster-Schaefer constructs, link analysis, Bayesian belief networks, these tools are the caviar, buttered toast, and cream fresh of mathematical statistics. It is possible to know the total number of procedures by type according to medical specialty, procedures per beneficiary, number of drugs prescribed, cost per patient, expected procedure time, total treatment duration, and so on. These techniques identify providers outside the range of their peers. Auditors target outliers. What we need to ask is why it is believed that a provider delivering more services than their peers 
is any more likely to be committing fraud than their peers who studiously remain within the statistical range of the pack. In any case, once the audit is on, we are at the next level. Third level, documentation-based algorithms. Statistical methods determine the likelihood of any particular word appearing in connection with a procedure. It identifies low probability phrases that do not belong. Although IBM's Watson AI is capable of understanding similarities between doctors' notes, computers cannot yet read patient notes and determine medical necessity. Bottom line, none of this takes out the human element. Audits degenerate into subjective assessments by coding experts. Here we find the most contentious and destructive aspects of recovery auditing. The provider thinks the documentation is sufficient, the auditor thinks not. Much conflict is little more than a battle of opinions. What can providers do to respond to increased use of algorithms? We will explore this next time. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigative Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence for Barraclue, New York, LLC. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. And so how big an issue is health literacy for your organization? Well, 9% of our audience said not an issue at all. And while about 50% of our audience didn't have their finger on the pulse of that information, the other two categories, minor impact to patient care and major impact to patient care, were split right down the middle at 21% each. It will be interesting to continue to watch health literacy, see how it affects transmission rates and the ongoing COVID epidemic. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thank you, Ellen. And that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We want to thank you very much for being with us. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Rack Monitor Investigator Report Ed Roach in New York, who reported our lead story. And a program note, there's not going to be a Monitor Monday edition next Monday. We're going to be celebrating Labor Day. It's a time when we honor America's working people. And in this year... We recognize the compassion, dedication, and sacrifices being made by our frontline nurses. In the meantime, when we're not live on the air, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play when you do rate us and give us a review. Until we return from Labor Day, this is Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Shelter in place, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.